November of 2015, several of the elders here at RHC, including myself, attended a conference on Reformed theology at Zion United Reformed Church in Ripon. The keynote speaker was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Godfrey. He's a renowned expert on church history, especially early church history. And toward the end of the day, they had a Q&A session where questions from the audience were plucked from a hat and answered by Dr. Godfrey. And I uh, had some things twirling in my mind, you know, around in my mind, and I, so I wanted to ask some questions, you know, so I wrote out questions and, and submitted them. And uh, they were, the two questions that I asked were, were selected. So uh, I was like super excited. I thought I finally arrived. Look how important I am. Of course, it was just the luck of the draw. Uh, but I just thought, wow, I've, you know, I, I never win anything. It was almost like lotto for me. This guy's going to actually read out my question and answer it. So I was really, really excited. And, um, and the primary issue for me at that time, and this is just a handful of years ago, the issue and thing that I was focused on in contemplating and, and investigating was consumerism in the church. It just seemed like at that point or at that time, several years ago, that that was the big thing. You saw all of this consumerism in the church. And, and I had read a book even a few years before that called The Divine Commodity, which revealed several ways in which church leadership had exchanged the biblical model for worship services for a consumeristic model that included things like, you know, watered-down teaching and, you know, really sappy pop music, hip-hop dancers, you know, drama skits, endless videos, moving lights, you know, lasers, smoke machines, cafes, bookstores, etc., etc., it was almost as if churches were converting large sections of their facilities into a strip mall. And then when it came to the services, it was just really kind of watered down and fluffy and superficial. And so that was something that I was wrestling with from like 2012 to 15. I still deal with it today, but my questions were associated with that. And so I, I, I put them out there and I wanted to know... What I was actually looking for is an affirmation. I was hoping that Dr. Godfrey would ask, read the question out loud and then answer it, or he would say, this is the number one issue for me, too. I think consumerism is ravaging the church. I was hoping for that, uh, but his answer surprised me. He did not say consumerism was one of the driving problems in the church at that time. It wasn't a primary issue or the primary issue. He said, and Cameron has cited him before in past messages, he said evangelism is the primary issue. And then he proceeded to explain why. And evangelism boiled down, it, it just simply has to do with how we reach people with the gospel. That's just all it is. It's the way in which we reach people with the gospel. And consumerism, if you think about it, is nothing more than an evangelistic tactic, right? Pastors use consumerism or consumeristic tactics to draw people into the church so they can evangelize them. You know, helicopter egg drops, snow hills, pizza parties. I mean, youth ministry was particularly horrific. I mean, you were just, you had so much pressure from church leadership for you to come up with these exciting things to get kids onto the campus so that they could potentially hear the gospel. And so... Consumerism really is, is, it comes after evangelism. So in that sense, he's right. Evangelism is the primary issue and consumerism comes out of it because pastors use consumerism to try to evangelize or draw people to the campus. And I always had a big issue with working really hard and spending tons and tons of money to get people onto the campus. I thought the church was called to go. So I, I've, I've always had a hard time with spending you know, mass riches on all of these things and these events to get people to church when really what we're supposed to be doing is equipping people at church and sending them out to evangelize. So these are the things that I was wrestling with, but his answer was different from mine. He's smarter than I am. But there is indeed something that precedes 
evangelism and consumerism. It comes before them both. In fact, it is the foundation on which evangelism stands. And I believe it is the primary issue or one of the primary issues that has always plagued the church and continues to plague her today. And what it is, is bad soteriology. Bad soteriology. Soteriology has to do with our understanding of how God saves sinners. Soteriology, if you boil it down, is the science of salvation. That's what it is. It's the study of how God saves according to Scripture. And the Bible clearly teaches a God-centered soteriology where God sovereignly elects, saves, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. So the Bible's soteriology is one of God being at the center of man's salvation, not man. God being sovereign in man's salvation, not man. God's sovereign choice prevailing and affecting salvation, not man's free will. If we understand biblical soteriology where God is central and sovereign in the salvation of sinners, we are going to be far more apt to or likely to stick to the biblical model of evangelism. Right, if you understand how God saves, then you can evangelize in accordance with how God saves. That's the logic of it. What is the biblical model of evangelism? It's really quite simple. If you reduce it down, it's simply preaching the gospel, praying for people, and leaving the results in God's sovereign hands. It's no more, no less. You preach the gospel, you pray for people, you pray for God to act, and you see what God does. And you keep doing that over and over and over. You don't ever have to change the tactic. But if we possess a bad soteriology where man is at the center and free will is exalted above all things and it is at the center, we're not going to stick to the biblical model of evangelism, are we? No. We will adapt a Finian approach that is designed to elicit an emotional response from people, or we will invent a model that appeals to people's consumeristic mentalities. In other words, our soteriology determines our evangelism. How we understand or what we understand about how God saves, that's going to determine how we go out and reach people. And if we understand it rightly, we're going to stick to what the Bible says. If not, we're going to come up with all sorts of stuff and have helicopters and drop eggs. We're going to do a lot of crazy stuff trying to get man, dead people, into a house of God so that hopefully they can become alive. If our soteriology is God-centered, we're going to have biblically-centered biblically focused evangelism but if it's the other way around if it's man-centered we're going to have man-centered evangelism you see how it works in the last 150 years man-centered a man-centered soteriology has reigned supreme in the church and paved the way for at least two deadly movements that i can think of decisionism and easy believism these are two movements that are there's remnants of them today they came around started in about the middle 1800s Decision, decisionism is the belief that a person is saved by coming forward, by, you know, raising a hand, by saying a prayer or some other external human act. Proponents of decisionism believe that performing one of these human actions gives sufficient evidence of conversion. Now, I see that hand. Well, that person's saved. See, decisionism is, is, is about making a decision for Christ and expressing that decision through action. So the emphasis in decisionism is on what you do, not on what you believe. It's on your actions. It's on your act. It's on your compliance to whatever that minister has told you to do. And this is why people in town do these huge events, and it's all based on decisionism. And then later after the event, they boast about 5,000 people getting saved and all this. And I'm like, you know who's actually saved? Wow, that's crazy. Most of the time I'm testing myself to make sure I am, but you definitively know that 5,000 are saved now. Why? Because they raised a hand, because they signed a card, because they got baptized, because they did this, because they did that. That's decisionism. Easy believism is very simple. It's the belief that we are saved by the free grace of God through faith, totally true, but repentance 
and submission to Jesus' lordship are not necessary. All you have to do is believe. That's it. The sinner's prayer is a popular tactic among, among its proponents. Just pray this prayer and you will be saved. Now they do affirm the reformed sola of faith alone, but they also believe that it's okay for faith to be alone. <laughs> In other words, faith doesn't have to be accompanied by repentance or the fruits of the Spirit or good deeds or any of the things that true saving faith actually produces and shows. Just remember your prayer when you prayed. And remember in how, how you prayed and how you believed in Jesus in that moment. And, and, and now you can pretty much live how you want. You've got fire insurance. You've got a get-out-of-hell-for-free card. It's the mentality. A trademark of man-centered evangelism is watered-down preaching or seeker-sensitive preaching. You know, the kind of preaching that does not disturb one's senses. The kind of preaching that does not challenge or offend the hearer. Preaching that does not address sin. Preaching that is centered on the free grace of God, but does not include a call to repentance or cross-bearing or death to self or purity or holy living or any of the other requisite things. Preaching that does not define Christianity as a throwaway life, R.C. Sproul. Because that's essentially what it is. You are throwing away the life that you've always lived and the life that you've always known for a life in Christ. But man-centered evangelism doesn't include any of that. Heaven forbid we ruffle some feathers and people won't come back. Even worse, in many churches today, Jesus isn't preached. He's marketed as a magic genie or guru who can give you financial prosperity, who can fix all of your problems. Just believe in Him. It's truly disgraceful. In the next section, Jesus sets the record straight. He literally describes what it means to follow Him, what it means to be a true disciple. And I, let me tell you, what he says in this next section does not align with decisionism, easy believism, man-centered evangelism, or watered-down preaching. If you'd be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26. I have entitled today's sermon, The Pattern of a True Disciple. We're going to look at four Ps. And by way of context... There was a massive crowd of Passover attendees gathered around Jesus as he had just entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt. This is the triumphal entry of the Lord. That's what we're looking at. This has just happened. He might have still been on the back of the colt. I believe he was probably in the temple courts at this time. But these things happened one right after the other. Many of you were here to listen to Cameron's sermon last week as he talked about the triumphal entry. So this happened right after that. And during all of this hoopla and excitement and pomp and circumstance, you know, all the screamings of Hosanna and the laying down of palm branches and just the utter chaos of all of these people thinking their conqueror has come, some Greeks who had come to worship the Lord, they were from out of town, they came and asked if they could speak with Jesus. That's the context. Let's begin with the first P. Number one, the petition to speak with Jesus. We see this in verses 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Stop there. These Greeks had traveled a great distance to come to Jerusalem to worship for the Passover celebration. They were proselytes or converts to Judaism. Or they might have been what MacArthur calls God-fearers, men who were kind of adhering to the Mosaic law and leaving behind their old religion. And I think they had exchanged their religion, you know, Greek mythology, 
for the law of Moses. And I believe they had underwent certain conversion rituals such as circumcision and Gentile baptism, these sorts of things. These guys were trying to be Jewish, and they were in their religion in a sense. They had come to Jerusalem to participate, and this was actually required during Passover. It was mandatory for diaspora, the scattered Jews, and Jewish proselytes who lived afar to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And this is why the city's population often exceeded a million people during this time. I think of the seven or eight feasts, I believe there was seven, four of them, you had to go to the city if you were Jewish. You couldn't celebrate it from your remote place. And so these guys had come here. And when they saw how people were responding to Jesus, they were very curious. They became very curious. They, they wanted to know if he was indeed the Messiah. That's what people were shouting, our king is here, our king is here. Hosanna, 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 save us now, save us now. And I believe these Greeks knew who Jesus was because Jesus had become very popular throughout Palestine, but I don't think they knew a lot about him because they lived far away. I think they had heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, which would be the most unique and specific sign to his Messiahship. They'd probably heard about some of these things, as they, at least as they traveled to Jerusalem because the roads were filled with pilgrims that were coming in, and they were all talking about Jesus. So they knew stuff about Jesus, but not enough. And they wanted to know. And as I said, Jesus may have been in the temple at this point. Since that is where he went when he first entered the city. The triumphal entry is completed. He enters on the donkey and gets off. He goes into the temple and he clears the temple. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus cleared, fashioned a whip and cleared the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And he does it here at the end of his ministry. Matthew 21, 12 says, when he came into the city after the triumphal entry, that's where he went. So I think that's where he was. I don't think he was still horseback. Non-Jews were restricted to the court of the Gentiles at the temple, so these Greeks would not have had direct access to Jesus if he were in the temple courts. They could only go so far. They had to stay in the outer courts. They could not go into the inner courts, and Jesus taught in the inner courts all the time. So I believe that there was a gap between them and Jesus. They could see Jesus in the distance in the, in the inner courts, but they couldn't go in there. So they see one of his disciples pass by, Philip from Bethsaida. Somehow they knew he was a disciple. Maybe they saw the crowd and saw them come into the temple, and they saw Philip following. I don't think they knew Philip's name, but they grabbed him, pulled him aside because he was still close enough to them and said, hey, we'd like to get an audience. They petitioned him. We'd like to speak with Jesus. Their actual words are, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I tell you, these Greeks were unlike the people in the crowd, and they were unlike the religious leaders. They were genuinely, according to the text, genuinely interested in Jesus. I don't believe that there is such a thing as a seeker, because I believe people are dead in their sin, and they're not actually going to be inclined to go after God or seek God. But in any case, I believe if there is such thing as a true seeker, and maybe that's one that the Spirit's already working in, these men were true seekers. They were genuine, genuinely curious and wanted to know. And the crowd appeared to be sincere, but proved to be superficial a few, de few days later when it followed the promptings of the religious leaders and did what? Demanded Jesus' execution, right? So everyone seems to be into Jesus at this point, but the crowd is pretty superficial, and they'll prove that in a couple of days. But these Greeks were different. Maybe they hadn't become corrupted by all of the gossip and all of the poisonous teachings of the, of the religious leaders because they lived at a distance. And if they'd lived closer to Jerusalem, they probably would have heard all that toxic stuff. It's really interesting if you consider... At the end of Jesus' ministry, who do we see coming to Jesus here? Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles. Who do we see turning away from Jesus and rejecting him? Jews. <laughs> and this rejection resulted in a judicial hardening and setting aside of the Jewish people, which is, is still going today that their unbelief and rejection of their own Messiah resulted in a hardening of their hearts and a setting aside of them temporarily. It's as if they've been put on the shelf 
by their God. And this will last until the full number of Gentiles has come in, Romans 11.25. God does make it clear that he will save a great number of Jews in the future, Zechariah 8.8, Revelation 7 through 19, those chapters. When this occurs, Romans 11.26 will be fulfilled. All Israel will be saved. What is all Israel? Every believer of all time, the elect, Jew and Gentile. The coming of the Greeks to Jesus here illustrates how the Lord will draw all men to himself for salvation. Verse 32, all men, meaning every single man who's ever lived? No, but all kinds of men, all types of men, every tribe and tongue. Revelation 7, 9. Greeks are being drawn as the Lord is being celebrated. And there we see the illustration of Salvation going out to all men, all types of people, every tribe and tongue. Interestingly, Philip didn't feel that he had the authority to grant the Greeks access or what have you. So he goes to Andrew. Maybe Andrew was a little higher on the, on the leadership totem pole. Way to go, Andrew in the back. Wake up. You're higher than me. You should be up here preaching. Get your butt up here. And he goes to Philip's like... Uh, Sure, hold on. And he goes over and he gets Andrew and he starts to speak with Andrew. Apparently Andrew could had a little more wisdom or a little more pull. I don't know. But Andrew replies, hey, let's, let's go talk to Jesus and see what he wants to do. It's up to him. Now MacArthur suggests that when Philip and Andrew went to Jesus, they brought the Greeks with them. So everything after this point here is Jesus talking directly to the Greeks, but I find that hard to believe if Jesus is in the inner courts of the temple because they weren't allowed to go in there. Bringing Greeks into this restricted area would have violated the law, and guess what the penalty for such a violation was? Death. If a non-Jew went into the inner court of the temple, they would be killed on the spot, stoned to death right there. And there were signs posted everywhere, warning, 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 don't go in here. Even if you went, you could be killed. Supposedly, it defiled the temple. It's crazy that you're a non-Jew and you go through all the rituals and all that, and you're still not good enough to enter every facet or part of the temple. Thank God for the gospel. And so I believe that Jesus was there, and they were here, and they couldn't get to him, but they grabbed Philip. And I believe Jesus used Philip and Andrew as messengers to deliver his response to the Greeks. It's as if Jesus said, all right, they want to meet with me. Go and tell them this. Now let's look at the second P. Number two, the purpose of Jesus' coming. Verses 23 through 24, here's Jesus' reply. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus stated that His hour had come. He was referring to the hour of His death, burial, resurrection, and glorification. This is fascinating because four times before in John we saw where His hour had not yet come. And now Jesus says clearly, it's time. I love how what's tied to the end of that phrase Jesus uses or that sentence, it's time for my glory. Jesus is glorified through his brutal death. Jesus is glorified through his burial. Jesus is glorified through his resurrection. Jesus is glorified through his ascension. Jesus is in glory and ultimate glory now as he reigns supreme over the heavens and the earth, over all creation, seated at the right hand of the Father. There's glory in his death, burial, and resurrection, but in particular in his resurrection. There is no glory for us if we won't die to ourselves. And this is essentially, he really lists here the, the purpose of his coming, right? The purpose for the incarnation. Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to earth to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, be buried in a tomb, to settle our accounts, rise from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for us, and to receive a glorified physical body, which is the template for our future 
glorified physical bodies, our resurrection bodies. This is why he came. He came to die. He came to be buried. He came to rise. He did these things for us. He then uses a farming metaphor to illustrate a spiritual truth. He begins his farming metaphor, or it's kind of a parable in a sense, but a farming metaphor here. He begins with his classic, double, emphatic, truly, truly. See it there? What does it mean? It means he's about to say something highly important, and we better pay close attention to what follows. He's done this several times in the Gospel of John. And his metaphor goes like this. If a grain of wheat, a seed falls onto the earth and, re and remains on the top soil, it will not die and produce a crop. Just think about that for a moment. It's true. You, you, if you have seeds that fall on top of the ground and don't go into the soil, they're not going to produce anything. They're not going to die. You have to bury it. And so he begins his, his little metaphor with that. But if a seed falls into, not onto, into the earth, right, Be beneath the topsoil, it will die and produce fruit or a crop. So if you want a crop, you've got to bury your seeds so they can die, and the scientific term is germinate. The spiritual parallel is simple. Jesus is the seed. If he does not die, there will be no spiritual crop. In other words, no one will be saved. There is no salvation for anyone ever. But if Jesus dies, it will bear much fruit. In other words, a lot of people will be saved. A mixed multitude, Revelation 7, 9. All whom God has appointed to salvation, Acts 13, 48. The elect, the church, the bride whatever title you want to use for us. Bottom line, Jesus had to die. Completely necessary. If he doesn't die, we cannot be saved. Death is required for our salvation. Not just any death, but the death of an innocent. And not just any innocent, but the death of our innocent Lord, who never sinned. Totally necessary. Without his death, we've got nothing. But we know the story doesn't end there. He didn't stay dead like a sprout or tender shoot bursts forth through the topsoil. His resurrection body burst forth from the grave, right? We must understand that salvation is and always has been based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4 says that. I gave you a message of highest importance, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose. This is how people have always been saved for all time, even the Old Testament saints. The blood of those animals they sacrificed didn't save them. They did those things as an image or as a representation of the faith in the one who would come to ultimately die. No one's ever been saved apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, ever, and no one ever will be. No amount of good deeds or anything else will do it. He had to die. The seed had to die in order to produce fruit. And I want you to consider the context in which Jesus says these things. <laughs> Just think about what's going on here as he's saying this. Tell them this. There is a massive crowd around him. They think he has come as their conquering king. He's going to kick Rome's bottom and deliver us. That's what they're thinking. They've got all of these expectations and messianic hopes of this great conqueror like King David. He's going to deliver us once and for all. He's going to reign supreme forever and ever and ever. By the way, that's the second coming, not the first. But this is what's going through their minds. It's a frenzied crowd. Come on, save us now, Jesus. Save us now. You raised a guy from the dead. You can do it. Save us now. All of this is happening. Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus says to Philip and Andrew, go tell the Greeks that I came to die so that many may live. What? Did he just say what I think he said? He's come to die? 
That means we're still going to be in Roman bondage. You can see why the crowd switched direction real quick in a couple days. Cameron talked about it last week, how Jesus didn't meet their messianic expectation. And this is why they ultimately killed him, not just the only reason, but one of the main reasons. It was as if, as if Jesus had said this, they want to meet with me? I'm on a mission. My hour has come. It's time for me to die and rise and produce fruit. Go preach the gospel to the Greeks. I don't think he's saying, why are you bothering me with this? Because Jesus was like way better than me because I would have said, oh my Lord, are you kidding me? Do you see what's going on here? They want to meet? They want counseling right now? I'm on the move. No, he just tells him, go and preach the gospel. I got to die. Go tell them that. Go what have I taught you for three years, the gospel? Go preach the gospel to them, Philip and Andrew. Andrew's like, why did you come and get me? Got me in trouble. But that's not all Jesus wanted communicated to the Greeks. He wanted something else communicated to the Greeks. And so he continues. The third P, the pattern of a true disciple. 25 through 26a. Listen to what Jesus says. Tell them this, Philip and Andrew. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Of course, he says a little bit more in a moment here. The idea here is that since Jesus is laying down his life for his people, for his disciples, his disciples must be willing to lay down their lives for him. Oh, oh they want to meet, they're interested in me, you go tell them that I'm going to die, and if they want to be my true disciples, they might have to die for me. And they'll certainly have to die to themselves. That's what Jesus says. You see, it's a, it's a, it's a trade, a life for a life. So the pattern of a true disciple is that he or she loves Jesus more than their own life. This is precisely what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 14, 25 through 33. But he added a couple more additional requirements here. You must love me more than others. You must love me more than anyone else. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me but loves his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters, or their own life more than me, he cannot be my follower. You know, there was a, a, a huge multitude of people following Jesus when he said this, and a bunch of them left. Wait a minute. I got to love him more than I love my own parents and my own family? That's not going to happen. Well, then you're not going to be a disciple. You must love me more than yourself. Verse 27, whoever is not willing to carry his cross and follow me cannot be my follower. What is the cross? The symbol of death. The tool of execution. pieces of wood in which Jesus died on to pay for our sin. If we're not willing to carry our own cross, meaning die to self, we cannot be his follower. We cannot love ourselves and cherish our lives above him. We must be willing to die for him and we must die for him daily. Dying to our will, dying to our decisions, dying to, to that which we value and want above him. It's a surrender thing. We have to carry our own cross. And the cross isn't a pretty thing. And Jesus certainly didn't mean wear one around your neck and you're good. Because that's about as far as many people go today. Well, I've got one. Yeah. It should be on your back. 
3, you must love me more than stuff, than everything else. Verse 33, he says, you must give up everything you have to be my follower. Right there is a, there's a willingness to forfeit anything and everything for Christ, that you will not hold anything above him. So, the cost of discipleship, the pattern here in combination with 14 of Luke is you've got to love Jesus more than yourself, more than stuff, and more than others if you want to be his disciple. And I would say the cost of being a disciple of Jesus is very, very great, isn't it? And this is also why he, he told that same crowd in that same moment to count the cost. You want to be my follower? Here's what re is required. You better think it through before you continue with me. He gives a couple of illustrations about a builder who, who you know, is going to build a building. And, and what kind of builder would you be if you didn't assess and estimate how much your total cost is going to be on that project? You get halfway through it and you can't finish it. This is what happens with people. They don't actually estimate the cost. They don't actually think about dying to self when they're making this decision. They're not considering the repentance and dying to self and all that. And they get about halfway through this thing and they walk away because the cost is too great. He gives another illustration of a, of a king who goes off to battle. What king would go off to battle and, and not be sure in his mind after doing all the research that he can actually win the battle? You'd be a foolish king if you go out to fight and then about halfway through it, you realize you can't win because you didn't estimate the cost. Jesus tells them what is required, what it's going to be like. You've got to love me above you and above all others and above all things. You cannot exalt anything. I have to be preeminent in your life. That's the goal. That's the mission for you. Carry your cross, but think about it before you continue with me. And he knew there was a great number of people out there that were not considering anything and just following superficially. And this is why they immediately heard this hard message and bounced. Cost of being a disciple is great. Jesus included a warning in our text at the beginning of verse 25. Those who love their life and refuse to submit and give their life to Jesus will lose their life. In other words, if you love your life, and this, we're not talking about just being a we're not talking about disciples here. We're talking about anyone, whether it be a disciple or whether it be an unbeliever, anyone who loves their life above Jesus, which is pretty much the disposition of every unbeliever. It was me for 30 years. Guess what? You're inevitably going to lose that life. It's going to be taken from you. You'll lose it. Jesus also said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, what did he mean there? I think he was addressing the idea of people serving him but not actually believing in him and obeying him. That's what I think he meant. There are folks who do this. They come to church, they tithe, they feed the homeless, they basically serve Jesus in, in many different ways, but they have never repented and put their trust in him. And when others aren't looking, they engage in disobedience and sin. Think of Judas. He's the poster child for this. He's the poster child for the false believer, the one who makes a profession but doesn't really believe and doesn't really obey the Lord. I mean, he literally walked with Jesus and served Jesus for three, for three whole years, but he didn't believe, and he kept his sin, his theft. Remember, he was stealing from the money bag. He kept it hidden from the others, so much so they were all fooled and didn't know what he was up to. They thought he was legit. They thought he was real. And yet on Judgment Day, Jesus will call those who served Him, but simultaneously disbelieved and disobeyed, He will call them workers of iniquity, of lawlessness, and He will command that they depart from Him. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. They are Lord, Lord Christians. You know, those who shout, Lord, Lord. Imposters who do things in the name of Jesus, many things, more than many real believers will do, 
but they do not believe and they do not obey. There is no death to self. There is no cross-bearing. So the pattern of a true disciple is twofold according to this text. They love Jesus more than self, and they believe in Jesus, they obey Jesus, and this is why they serve Jesus. There is a foundation of true faith in the true disciple, and that's why they serve, and that's why they do what they do for the Lord. That's why they're dying to self. That's why they're bearing a cross. They already believe. But it's essential that we understand that faith comes with these things for true disciples. If these Greeks desired to follow Jesus, if they desired to become His disciples, they had to follow this pattern. I'm going to die, so guess what? You want to follow me? you got to die. You may have to die physically. Back in the first century, it was a good chance that you would die as a Christian because they killed Him left and right. But even if their lives were preserved by the Lord, by His providence, they still had to die to their will, die to their sinful desires, die to their sin, die to their fleshly desires, die to their own passions, die to their own goals. You see, the true disciple exalts the will of God and the will of His kingdom above their will and their desires and the will of this world for them. You know what the theological term for this pattern is, right? We're, we're talking about the pattern of a true disciple. Do you know what the theological term for the pattern is? It's repentance. Repentance is the ongoing daily process of dying to ourselves, dying to sin, and working to make and keep Christ preeminent above all in our lives. Repentance is built into a true disciple's spiritual DNA. We are new creations, new people, born again, born of God, born from above. We are different from this world. We are aliens and strangers. We don't fit. We don't belong. And one of the trademarks is, is that we're dying to ourselves and dying to our sin, that we are worshipers of God, not self. And if our life is characterized by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and repentance, as I've explained, is death to self, hatred of sin, the exaltation of Jesus, not self. It's the repression of self. When self rises, I say no to self, and I want to exalt Jesus. If we can see those things in our life, the faith and the death to self, the repentance and, and how, it's, how it fleshes out in all of these unique, incredible ways, then the pattern of being a true disciple is present in us. No one ever gets saved without repentance. But if the pattern is missing, we need to heed Jesus' warning in verse 25. The life we love and cherish above Jesus will be lost, lost in hell. And today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Not the next day, not next week. Believe in Jesus Christ today. Repent today. Begin the process of dying to self and exalting Christ, making Him preeminent in your life today. The Scripture says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're a truly repentant person, you're going to bear the fruits of repentance. And that's death to self, exaltation of Jesus. Your life is about that. Luke 3.8. You know, Jesus described another way in another text how we can tell if we're true disciples of His. John 15, verses 1 through 11, true disciples abide in Him. What does this mean? It's not a word we use today. It means to remain in Jesus. It means to never leave Jesus. Never. I'm not talking about disobeying Him on occasion. I'm talking about flat out walking away from Him, forsaking Him. Think of Judas again, the poster child for these things. He was with Jesus, but he left Jesus, and even worse, 
He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sold him out. And Jesus said it would be better that he'd never been born. You see, those who pray a prayer and, and repent and believe in Jesus and then move on with their lives, go back to business as usual, which happens all the time in churches, they're not true disciples. They're not saved. Why? Because they do not abide. They do not remain. They do not bear a cross. They do not die to self. They do not love the Lord above all, especially self. This is why I hate the prayer of salvation. I hate it because it gives people false hope. Well, I prayed the prayer. What did you pray when you prayed? I prayed that I would be saved. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I guess. That's who I prayed to. You guess? And I like what Paul Washer said. He said the prayer of salvation has put more people in hell than anything else because it gives them a false assurance. They're trusting in the decision they made and in the prayer they prayed and not the Savior they allegedly prayed to. Did you know that faith doesn't save? It's the Savior that saves. Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. But your faith is what connects you to Him. And that faith will be accompanied by good deeds and repentance and cross-bearing and death to self and all of that. If you're a true disciple, it'll all be there. It'll be a struggle, but it'll be there. Point is, abiding means that we keep believing in Him, that we keep repenting, that we keep trusting, that we keep confessing when things are off. We stay with Jesus, never leave Him. Now let's look at the last P, a promise for true disciples, verse 26b. You see, Jesus says, go tell them that I'm going to die and that if they want to be my followers, they're going to have to die. And if they love their life above me, they're going to lose it, right? He tells them that, but he also says, but look, there's a benefit to this. There's a huge promise attached to it. He says this, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, we would all admit that being a true disciple is not easy. It is difficult to lay down our lives for Jesus, is it not? This is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It is difficult to submit each area of our lives to Jesus, right? It's difficult when you find an area in your life that's not submitted to Him, that's just gone crazy. Trying to bring that into submission and subjection to Him is not easy. And once you get it there, boy, it's even harder to keep it there. How many times have you gotten over something, then went and grabbed it off the altar and put it back on? How hard is it? Very challenging. It's difficult when you find an area in your life that you realize He's not the Lord of, seemingly. And then you, wanna, then you work to confess that and, and repent and bend and, and bow to Him and you submit it to Him. In two months, you're right back where you were. Why did I take that back up? It's Difficult to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, right? Romans 12, 1. That's true worship, that your body is like a temple, and your act of worship is self-denial, not self-exaltation. That's hard, man. The narrow path that leads to life is fraught with much difficulty, danger, and disappointment, isn't it? But never be tricked into thinking you can become like Jesus without suffering like Jesus. To become like Jesus, we must suffer as He suffered. He bore a cross. We must bear a cross. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23. It's a daily thing. And I'll tell you this. If the Christian life is easy for you, you probably aren't living the Christian life. You're living something, but it ain't the Christian life. Because even though you don't have external adversaries coming at you from all directions here, because we live in a safe zone, you should be at war with yourself. Much difficulty, 
It's just, it's just hard to bear a cross and to die to self. It is hard to love Jesus more than self and others and stuff. It's hard. It's difficult. It's hard. But here's the deal. Being a true disciple has its rewards, and they are worth far more than any trouble we would experience in following him or in life in general. Verse 26b, Jesus issues a very quick twofold promise to the Greeks if they become true disciples. First, they shall receive the promise of eternal heaven. He worded it like this, where I am, there will my servant be also. Guys, I'm going to heaven, and if you're my true disciple and you die to yourself, you do the right thing, you live by faith, guess what? You'll be where I'm going. That's what he says. That's your destination. The antithesis is that you lose your life. You don't get eternal life. Second, they shall receive the promise of eternal honor. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Or her. Do you like what MacArthur wrote here? All human honors pale into insignificance compared to the eternal honor God will bestow on those who love and serve His Son, those who are true disciples. Now, you must understand the Apostle Paul suffered greatly as a true disciple of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28, he describes all the things he went through, right? He's kind of kind of getting toward the end of his ministry, and he goes through this list, and I'll just read off some of the things. He was given 39 lashes five times. That means he was whipped. Almost, 40 times was a death sentence. He was whipped 39 times right up to an inch of his life. Five times he was whipped like that. I'm surprised the guy had any skin on his back. He probably didn't. He was beaten with rods three times. It's another type of whipping with a heavier object. He was nearly stoned to death. I mean, they literally started pummeling him with stones, and he goes unconscious. And and then when the people leave, he kind of snaps out of it and stands up. And he's all pulverized and bloody and beaten and bruised. They thought he was dead. That's why they quit throwing rocks at him. He was shipwrecked three times. That had to be fun. I remember he was bitten by a poisonous snake. He faced dangers from rivers and robbers. These are the things he listed. He faced dangers from false believers, right? Remember the Judaizers, those fake Christians who said, man, you better get circumcised or you can't really love Jesus. He dealt with them all the time. I think the greatest assaults on the true Christian are coming from those who profess to be Christians. It's Christians, alleged Christians, who upset me more than anyone else and who cause me so much despair and heartache. It's not, it's the brethren that do this to us because you don't expect them to treat you this way. The world, who cares? You know it's coming. Great. Badge of honor. But when believers pulverize you, it's horrible. And he had to deal with this in ways that none of us will ever be able to, we couldn't even imagine. He experienced sleepless nights, just constant anxiety and worry. He went without food and water many times, felt like he was going to starve to death. He shivered and shriveled in cold weather because he didn't have enough clothing. He experienced much stress and anxiety even despair as he bore the burden of concern for all the churches he had planted. This man suffered greatly as a true disciple. Maybe next to Jesus, no one's ever suffered as harsh as him. But he considered these horrible things to be light and momentary troubles in comparison to the promises that true disciples shall receive. Eternal heaven and eternal honor uh, far outweigh anything and everything we will go through for Jesus. Think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus' life was a living hell. He was poor. He was always hungry. He was scab-ridden, abandoned, neglected. But when he died, he was carried by angels into paradise and seated beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. Luke 16, 22. It's just a parable that Jesus tells, but he's talking about those who suffer for him will be rewarded so greatly that at that moment of stepping into glory, you begin to think all of that trash was worth it. It was all worth it. This is what I did it for. Our travail 
is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs our travail. 2 Corinthians 4.17 So being a true disciple is totally worth it. Following Jesus is totally worth it. I don't even have time to mention all of the other blessings and, and promises and things that come with it. You can go read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 anytime you want and read about our spiritual blessings. It'll just blow your mind. But there's so much packed into this deal. These aren't empty promises. Those who suffer for Christ's sake will be exalted with Christ. And there are blessings that we experience in the here and now, and I just don't even have time to go into all of them. There's just too many to list, and I must wrap up. I'll end with a simple invitation and a simple exhortation. Do you desire to become a true disciple? Put your trust in Jesus. Believe that He died for your sins. Believe that He was buried to settle your account. Believe that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, so that you could live victorious over sin, victoriously. Victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Repent and follow Him. Repentance is the very beginning of death to self. And it'll continue on. Begin to love Jesus more than, than others, more than self, more than stuff. Abide in Him. Keep believing. Keep repenting. Never, ever, ever leave Jesus. Boy, that just doesn't sound like easy believism or decisionism, does it? No. It's not as simple as just accepting His grace and believing and then going back to life as you knew it. Those who do that are not saved. We must. We must be killing sin or sin will kill us. We must be dying to self. Our lives should be about exalting Christ and keeping Him preeminent above all. That's the great struggle. And the struggle is worth the reward. And in the midst of all that great struggle, there is great sanctification that is happening. That He is making us like Christ. Because we will never become like Christ without suffering. And if we don't have external forces causing us to suffer, then we settle for the suffering that we're dealing with in our own lives as we are trying to kill sin and live for Christ. You want to be a true disciple, you need to follow the pattern and you need to obey what Jesus said to the Greeks. I got to die, and we know he died. And if you want to follow me, you got to die too. You might die by malicious men, persecutors someday, and you got to be willing to do that. But if that net day never comes right now, you got to start dying. You got to kill yourself. Kill your will. Kill your plans. And live for me. And live for my kingdom. And I promise you, it'll be the best thing. If you already consider yourself a true disciple, because you've got faith and, and repentance is there, and, and what I'm saying is resonating with you. You see yourself in it. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But have you been living as a true disciple? Because it's pretty easy to get off track. Have you been dying to yourself and loving Jesus above all? Are there areas in your life in which Jesus is not preeminent? What areas do you need to submit to His Lordship? Your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend, your internet life, especially when there's nobody around. The figures are coming in. This 80% of people look at porn. That's not submitted to His Lordship. If you can't stay off of that and you have internet, get rid of the internet. Pluck out your eye. Jesus said if it causes you to sin, get rid of it. 
What is it that's not submitted? Your internet life, your financial life, that's not submitted to Him. Your thought life, your speech life, your career. You know how many people exalt their career above all other things? Die to self. What area is not submitted? And we got to start dying to ourselves. 